All right, Jad Schickler, the CEO of Blues Funeral Recordings and vocalist in Blue Heron, and apparently many, many other things that I'm glad that you're here to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. What are we going to talk about first? Um, well, I don't know really where to start. I, I've, I've known you from Blues Funeral for a while. I know some of the music that you put out through there, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Black Blood of the Earth, the Blue Heron song. I love that song, awesome. and the, uh, the couple singles that you've put out are great. So I really want to touch on that stuff. I know you guys just put out your debut EP, and I'm sure there's more coming. Um, I want to hit on that, but you've done so much more just in this same genre in whatever you want to call it, desert, stoner, metal, that maybe we should start before some of that. Um, in my opinion, kind of as a new, not new, but you know, I, I didn't listen to this stuff back in the 90s. I didn't know it existed. I was into sure. different kinds of metal. I was into other kinds of music. So I'm kind of a newcomer to this kind of genre, I feel like. And I love talking to people kind of about the history of it, um, the different bands, the different sounds, all the different things that go on. So what what's your opinion, especially as a person not only in a band in it, but a person that runs a label in it, and you're involved with other record labels too, and you're involved in lots of things in this genre throughout the years. What do you see going on right now? Like uh, this huge resurgence. There's this, this huge boom. Yeah. It, to me, there's never been a better time to be in like stoner metal, but I wasn't really into it when Caius was at its at its peak. You know. Sure. I don't think I was actually. I, I was just kind of discovering Caius right as they were coming to an end. But to me, the end of Caius, and then there was sort of like a year or two year gap, and then that was really where certainly in my personal experience, and I think musically, that's where it started to kind of develop into a scene and a movement that went on to last, you know, a couple of decades and is still going now. I mean, there's a lot of folks who will debate whether or not Caius was the origin point, but for some of us, it was. And it was sort of like this sure. void for those of us who had just gotten into and discovered Caius and now Caius is gone. And you're just hungry for this thing that, only a couple bands had done and, you know, only Caius had really done it their way. Monster Magnet was doing something kind of like that. Fermentu was doing something peripheral. If you were into the Melvins, you might've connected them, although the Melvins had their own thing, but you know, you could count it on one hand, how many bands were doing those, that, that sort of thing. And then it felt like one of the coolest and most original Caius was suddenly gone. And so there was this kind of scrambling around looking for it. And then people started starting bands to play the music that they were missing because Caius was gone. And so that to me was the beginning of that. Becoming... Did it seem to continue at that point? Did it seem to continue pretty strongly at that point? Because to me, there were, there was like this, this gap just from an outsider that, that didn't live through it necessarily. A lot of the bands that I'm into or the bands that cite their, you know, the bands that they were influenced by, it kind of seems like there was this gap where it was like, Oh, this new thing, we're going to call it desert or stoner is great sure. and then it kind of like maybe grunge there was a line blurred between there and then that was like there's just like this nothing and now there's like kind of this kind of new age of stoner or something did it continue pretty strongly in your opinion i mean in my mind i would say like in the early like like 2005 2006 it felt like there was a lot of bands recycling a sound and i don't think that they thought that they were doing that but as somebody who was running a little at the time it started to feel like that like it started to feel samey like 
third and fourth tier kind of going back to the same well of, of, of that Caius influence desert sound. And it just, it was just falling a little flat. And I, that's kind of when I got, I mean, I got out, I sold my first label meteor city in 2007. And so I was sort of out of it by as of about 2008 and didn't really come back to it until around 2015. And I, as I came back, it seemed like there was a new crop of interest, a new, a new generation of bands, a bunch of labels just starting to form or become formed within like, you know, 2012, 2013. So it seems like there was a period and I happened to be gone from the scene completely <laughs> removed from it when that gap happened. And I yeah. learned that that happened. I mean, not, that, not to say there was no bands, not to say nobody was doing it, but it definitely had right. the had a valley in the popularity and the interest in just the people dedicated to it. And then it hasn't really slowed down since then though, since, you know, 2014, 15 with the vinyl craze yeah. kicking in yeah. and yeah. And just, it's certainly more diverse now in terms of like, I mean, if you look at a band like space slug and or dope Lord and a band like elephant tree and a band like Ruby, the hatchet, and you know, you, you could just, you could kind of go around the world. I mean, these bands sonically, really have nothing to do with each other, but you can, in my mind, you can kind of trace a lot of their roots back to somewhat of a similar place. Whereas yeah. in 2005, it was a lot of bands that sounded like they'd listened to a lot of Caius and Fumanchu. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to be like Black Sabbath is who everyone cites now, whether you're on like the doom sludge side, or if you're on like the desert rock stoner right. side they all kind of trace back to black sabbath at least that's that's what they claim i don't you know i don't always hear it that way but at least a lot of them are, are say they're influenced by it where i was assumed that there would be a point where a lot of them had kind of moved, forgotten about black sabbath and, and like you said were kind of like influenced strictly by caius or trying to imitate caius or any other band fu manchu or something else from that in that same era maybe yeah i mean i don't think anybody's trying to imitate anybody consciously but you can definitely trace the bands who have been kind of listening to everything that started with like seventies proto metal and the, and the early threads of heavy metal that was Sabbath versus the bands who kind of discovered what they wanted to do when they heard desert rock. Like, I think the bands that they can go back and, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can tell somebody who listened to King Crimson, like, Oh, they're kind of doing interesting things. Even if you're not a King Crimson fan, there's more to be drawn from the entirety of like heavy music history than just what started in like 1993 in the Palm desert, you know, like, and so bands who go back further, right. not just to Sabbath, but all, you know, all over the spectrum, I think have more to offer because they're pulling from more and they're, and they're internalizing more and creating something new out of more to begin with. Yeah. So is this kind of resurgence of stone or metal or whatever, is that what got you back into it with blues funeral or is it just a happy coincidence? Uh, it was a fortunate coincidence. I missed it. I, I sold my first label at a, at a good time where my best friend and I had started it. We ran it for a few years. It was really fun. Then he got a good job and I continued running it myself. And then it was just, it was starting to be, I was like looking ahead to the future. Like, all right, I'm, I'm, it's sustaining itself sort of, but I have this debt that I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to pay off and it doesn't feel like it's growing. It feels like it's just kind of status quoing and I didn't see a, a change coming. And so when I got out, it was just like, okay, I was able to pay the debt and walk away and I had a great 10 years. 
And I didn't necessarily think I was going to think about it again. And then I missed it tremendously, not just the label, but the feeling like I had this sort of business slash artistic outlet. I mean, the, the great thing about running a record label and being in the music industry is it's both, right? It satisfies you. If you're like, if you have an entrepreneurial streak, it's very satisfying. And if you feel like you have yeah. good taste in music or interesting taste in music, it's certainly satisfying to be able to go, I'm going to pick this band and this band and this band and this band and present them to the world and put my name on them as I think people need to hear this. And if people respond, it just kind of bolsters your confidence that you're where you should be. So it's very satisfying in both those ways. And I didn't realize how much I needed that in my life until I did not have it anymore. And so right. when I started to find my way back, I didn't go looking for that specifically. I was just kind of starting to listen again, kind of starting to read a couple blogs again. I started writing for a couple blogs and then just sort of fell into it. I, I just was talking to the guy who ran Magnetica, who owned and ran Magnetica Records at the time. And he just said, I need some help if you're interested in doing something again. And I said, sure, I'll, I could probably help. I need to figure out what I missed and what I don't know how to do that's changed since 2008. Um, and I did. And kind of it just it drew me back in and just Im immediately I was like, oh, right, this is this is what I was probably supposed to be doing this whole time. And yeah, I got away from it. And thank God, I, you know, there was an opportunity to come back to it. So. Yeah. So what, what was the, the impetus for Meteor City? Because this was this was like, what would you say, 10 years before that? This was 97? You 97. Know, how, how did 97? So uh, were you just an entrepreneurial type of kid or were you, did you have some sort of idea how to run a label? What was it that made you start a label at that time? My dad had a great business mind. My brother was a huge, he's eight years older than me and he went to college for entre entrepreneurship and that was in the eighties. And it was just sort of that I, I was exposed to the ideas without really knowing that they were affecting me. And so I just kind of, as a young adult was always thinking like, Oh, I could start a business. Oh, I could start something that that's a, that's a cool idea. And I didn't, I didn't go to college expecting to do that, but I got out of college and went and got a job and went, Oh man, this sucks. Like, I don't want it just a shitty job. I went to college and it was great. And I thought I, you know, I had all these ideas about things but I was a huge music fan. And while I was in college, I started kind of trading bootlegs on the internet, like the brand new 1996 internet <laughs> with other Caius fans around the world. And when I kind of was at, suddenly out of school and didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And all I knew was I definitely didn't want to work at borders, which is where I got my first job out of college. <laughs> the, this idea of like, Hey, I bet there's other Caius fans out there who would be who are like me, kind of looking for more music that's cool and interesting and kind of in that vein. I bet maybe we could find someone. I could my best friend and I like taught ourselves to build an early web page and we just we we you know paid for a shopping cart system. We just learned how to do all this stuff. It was much easier to do it because there was no judge. There's you couldn't be judged against great websites because there were no great websites because it was 1997. Yeah. So it's not like today I could go teach myself to build a website and be competitive with, with, you know, a great e-commerce store. I couldn't, but back then you could because nobody had really figured it out yet. So anybody could put together the clunkiest, shittiest looking website and be sort of like appealing, like, wow, we don't know what this is, but there's only like 19 websites. So this was, this was kind of cool. Like, so it, it just, it, we fell into it and it was like, oh crap, we have a business now, you know, and, 
and the customers fed into it by asking us about stuff that we hadn't maybe discovered yet. And that snowballed and, and just opened up our awareness to more stuff that we should be doing. And then the online store just naturally kind of developed into let's put out our own record. Let's put out our own compilation. And we, put, and we basically put out a call for demos and a bunch of bands who ended up becoming pretty big in the scene. I mean, the Atomic Bitchwax, Lowrider, Dozer, 60 Watt Shaman. I mean, these are all bands we ended up getting on our first compilation and John Garcia from Caius and, you know, just basically ended up putting out a pretty cool record. Like, Oh shit. All right. We have a label now and learned how to run a record label and learned how to run an online business at the same time. And, it, you know, it was a pretty forgiving time to be trying to figure that, figure that stuff out. So, the, the impetus of meteor city, you started off as more of an online, uh, you're selling records, that kind of a thing. Yep. Uh, turned into all of that is heavy. I'm assuming with like merch and, and more geared towards that. When did yep. you sign your first band, and how how did you come across this band? What what was your goal there at that point? Kind of starting like a real record label. Is that what yeah. Meteor City really became? Was was a real record label? It did eventually do that. I mean, the next okay. thing after the compilation was that the guys from Nebula were on tour, and they stopped through uh, a record store in Texas called Archie's Rock Shop, where Henry Vasquez worked. And that guy just kind of knew everybody in the beginnings of the scene. And they said, hey, we're on our way to go make a record in Seattle. We don't really have a plan or you don't even know how we're going to pay for it. Uh, do you know Do you know these guys from Meteor City? Maybe they want to do something. And he called me up and put us on the phone with Nebula. And they told me the deal. I said, yeah, well, sure, we'll do it. And so it just kind of fell in our laps. Um, and they were going to do an EP. So we had the idea, well, hey, well, let's do a split. We'll do, we'll, you know. We'll find another band to do four songs. They'll do four songs. And Lowrider was the best band, in my opinion, on our first compilation. So it was like, hey, we're going to, we got Nebula doing four songs. Do you want to do four songs for a split? So how did you go about even finding this kind of music at this point? Because for me, doing Slightly Fuzzed, it's so simple. It couldn't be more simple. I use Instagram. I have Twitter. I mean, it's it's all at my fingertips every day. I can reach out to my favorite bands. I can reach out to you. I can ask you to be on the podcast. I could could do anything I wanted easily within seconds. Tonight on the couch, I could do it. So at this point, I mean, the internet is there, but it's it's not what it is today. How are you even coming across these bands? How are you talking to them? There were two websites that were sort of for fans of Caius. One was run by a guy in California. One was run by a guy in Australia. There were a couple of people that sort of, I don't know, kind of like posted their info like, hey, I'm a big Caius fan. And they would put you in this little... (laughs) <laughs> what it was, it was like a little classifieds at the end of their site. And, you know, this guy in Sweden is a Caius fan. This guy in Albuquerque, New Mexico is a Caius fan. And there weren't that many, but like you could just sort of list yourself on there. And then when we just started, we decided to start all that's heavy. I just reached out to both sides. I'm like, Hey, could you put a link to our website from your websites? And like, just tell people, Hey, if you like Caius, maybe you like what these guys are doing. And they did. And people started just finding us because again, there weren't that many, there wasn't that much on the internet. And there were a lot of Caius fans going, there's no Caius. It's 1997. Like what else is there that we might like? And they would go to these two fan sites and get led to us. We got our first phone call before we knew we were open. (laughs) We set, we set up a landline for the business, but we hadn't like, we lived in a big house with like six people. We didn't really have it figured out which phone was which yet and like one of our housemates answered the phone he's like hello they're like yeah is this 
all that's heavy? He's like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> gave us the phone. Like, like, and she was like, you should probably answer your business phone in a more professional way. Like, you are definitely right. We should for sure mark that this phone is for the business <laughs> in case anybody else calls because we yeah. had no idea anybody was going to call. And yeah, I mean, it was, and it, it just, it just was, it was very word of mouth. And, you know, we, we were fortunate enough to get like Nebula and John Garcia and Bitchwax and a couple of those bands right at the beginning. But yeah, we just, people I mean, found that, that's, us because that's they were be a group of luck too, right there. I mean, those bands are fucking fantastic. I mean, how did, was it, the, was there some, some, something about them that you were like, I, we need them. There is something there. Or again, was this just another kind of happy accident that you were like, you're good enough. We'll sign you. And they turned out to be fucking great. Or, I mean, it was both. I mean, both like Bitchwax and Solace. So we put out, when we were doing that compilation, we put out a call for like, you know, anybody who's interested, like we're basically doing a, a compilation album for music that fans of Caius would like. We hadn't even really defined the term desert rock yet or, and I, and nobody, a lot of, nobody was really stoked about the term stoner rock. So like, it was kind of this unnamed music that you Doug, if you liked Caius and you liked Fu Manchu and Monster Magnet. So we just put, we just put the word out. And again, it just kind of went out on these couple of sites and on our, our little shitty webpage. And we just got demo tapes and demo CDs in the mail. And we got, I got a demo tape that had basically Atomic Butchwax's first recorded record that was not yet released on one side of the tape. And the back side of the tape was Solace's first like five or six song demos. And both of them like, written at the top of like their side of the tape was a phone number in New Jersey. Cause they're both Jersey bands tried to call both of them like 15 times and could never get anybody from either band. And then we finally figured out maybe like when we had almost filled up the whole comp that their area of South Jersey had changed its area code. And so the area, the phone numbers written on the tape were both wrong because the area code was wrong. And so that's, so every time we were trying to call, we couldn't get a person. And I finally got, one of the guys from Bitchwax, like, oh, finally got you. We got got your demo tape. Do you want to be on this comp? They're like, sure. So, and then eventually Solace became one of the first bands we signed because of that same demo tape. So, yeah, it was a lot of luck and a lot of, like, figuring out, like, how to reach people when it's not like it is now. There was no social media. There was no texting. There was no, I mean, it was, yeah, it was early internet. And, I mean, you could connect with people, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the way it is now. Yeah. So did you put out Odio then for Lowrider? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I again like I'm kind of new to all this stuff. So like I I'm, you know, just discovering Lowrider a handful of years ago. Sure. And for me I was like, oh this is perfect. This is exactly what I was looking for. You know, I I'm I'm looking for that kind of like deserty fuzzy sound. I like um Rollerball, I like Astro Queen. I, I oh, love yeah. that Lowrider album. And I'm going around looking now for like other lowrider music. And I'm like, oh, that was 20 years ago almost. Like, damn, they only put it one on record. What a bummer. And then 2020 comes about and they put out the best record of the year, in my opinion. And on your label again. I mean, you just right. have this relationship with them. And and what a stroke of luck that you hit, you found lowrider <laughs> at this point where they put out this record too. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was... Peter, the main guy in the band was 16 when they started. And that's when we were putting, that's when we were kind of just fielding submissions for that compilation. And he sent us their first two songs that he basically did all himself on his little, you know, kind of half-assed home recording setup. But it was, there was just, there was like a magic to it. It's like, this is, this is great. And they became the first band we signed because it was just so good. And it was just, 
we were there right from the beginning with him and with them. And they never had like sort of rock star ambitions, but it just, there was something about what they were doing that resonated. And so they were the first, they were the first band we really signed in a proper way. We did that split and then we did Odio, but then they just kind of like, I don't know. They just, it, they, they were still writing a little bit for a little while, but you know, they just, they, everybody kind of grew up a little bit and went and got jobs and they went in different directions. I mean, Peter was still, they were, a lot of them were still musicians, but they just weren't doing the lowrider thing. And then he and I, you no, know, I was, I was going to say he and I kind of reconnected like in 2015 and just, just sort of talking for the first time. And, and, you know, th that early, the early relationship was all email and stuff. And then 2015, we could just, you know, we could have messenger conversations. We could call each other on FaceTime. And, you know, so it was, it was a different way to reconnect. And he was just like, yeah, I think I'm ready to start doing this again. I'm like, well, perfect. Cause I have an idea for a, a label project again, if you're interested. And he ended up, I mean, I don't know if you know this. I mean, he's, he's my art director, basically my creative partner on Postwax, which is the idea that I came up with when I started thinking about doing a label again, because I didn't want to just be another label. I, I wanted to have like a reason to do it that would differentiate it. And he loved the, the concept behind it to the extent where, I mean, he's a professional designer and, and yeah. director. So he got on board to help me put the whole thing together. And we essentially developed it as a, as a team. And it just made natural sense. Like, you know, if you were ever going to return to Lowrider, maybe this is the vehicle to do it. And, and he agreed. Yeah. I, I started kind of like unweaving this like web of Lowrider a few months ago and noticed that he had done the artwork for like the new Greenleaf album oh, yeah. as well as, as well as zone album and, and all these things. And I'm, I'm putting all these things together going, Holy shit. Like, and not to mention the fact that you're just gone for 20 years <laughs> decided right. to put out this yeah, amazing record in, in 2020. Well, he has a band, he had a band. I shouldn't, I don't know if I should say had or has, cause I guess, I guess the band could do something whenever he feels like it, but he's got another band called IR droid. That's not as, it's not as heavy or as deserty, but, um, but really cool in its own right. And he did a couple records with them um, in like the 2010s. So again, he hasn't left music behind completely, but he, it wasn't like his main thing. Like he'd show up on a Greenleaf record or he'd show up and do something with one of the guys from Dozer or, you know, on a truck fighters project or something. And he's always doing kind of, he did, you know, he'd do art and design for Cripple Black Phoenix and Greenleaf and whoever else. So he was, he was always there and he was friends with a lot of these guys. And it just, the, the impetus to try to figure out, the lowrider thing again, I don't, I don't want to totally speak for him, but it seems like wasn't powerful enough to, to make him recommit to it until he finally did. And then, you know, and I think there was a bit of pressure too. I mean, Otaio was this beloved record and the more time that passed since Otaio came out, I think the harder it would, it, it was to conceive. <laughs> like, Yeah. You have a Chinese democracy kind of thing going on where, you know, how can you follow up to this thing? Twenty? How can you ever make music again twenty years later? I mean, you don't. You skip that whole like gradual, you know, progression. It, you, you just jump from one to the other, and it's got to be impossible. But they did it. I mean, very few bands do it, and they did it. Right. It'd be very I mean, easy if nobody cared about your first band, but if, ever, if your first band is <laughs> beloved and yeah. put out this record that was kind of a cornerstone of what became a scene for the next twenty years, yeah, that that's pressure. I yeah. mean, yeah, I get it. But they nailed it. They, they fucking nailed it they head on, man. And, you know, uh, word on the street is that they're working on some new material for next year. Is, is, do, you, do you know anything about that? Yeah, well, it's going to be part of. So, I mean, we're doing Postwax again, um, which it, it's going to be a nine release series. And Lowrider 
and the guys from Elephant Tree are doing like a combined split release for the next Postwax series, and which is perfect because Lowrider is like is the first band I ever signed, and like just sort of has this place in my heart that can't possibly be replaced by anybody else. And Elephant Tree is the band that brought me back to the scene and the style in 2015. They're the band that was on Magnetic Eye that I heard and thought, oh my God, this band is amazing. And I contacted Magnetic Eye to do an interview with them for a blog I was writing for. And that's hmm. what led me to Magnetic Eye's owner saying, hey, if you want to get involved with the label, I could use some help. So, you know, Elephant Tree is sort of responsible for that. And Lowrider has just, you know, been a part of my musical identity for 20 plus years. So Very yeah, cool. they're doing a split together where they're each going to do like I think three original songs, and they're actually going to do a joint, like a collaborative song uh, together. Cool. So you know, I, I, there's not too many bands that do collaborative songs, but I think it's such a cool thing. And like you know, hip hop and country, like they they do it all the time. But it's such a rare thing for like rock and metal. And um, what, what I think it was like Cadaver, maybe or, or something like that. Or well, uh, yeah, the Elder and Cadaver thing that came out. Yeah, year. like they, they did this whole album together, and I'm like, I, I wish more bands would do that. It's such a cool thing, and. Especially yeah. if you're not like looking to, you know, make another album one year later after you made the last one or something like do something different, do something creative with another band that you respect. I think it's awesome. Yeah, they they kind of had that idea themselves. I mean, I was I mean, I, I love Elephant Tree and I was always kind of putting it, making it known to them. If you ever want to do something again, we should. And uh, yeah, they were like, hey, you know, we we would do something if you if we could be on a record with Lowrider. And I'm like, well, I know Peter loves your band. So that, <laughs> that ought to be a, a fairly easy matter to arrange. So, yeah. Cool. So tell me about your band then, uh, Spirit 2 first. This was around maybe that same oh, yeah. time starting Meteor City or, or after? Uh, after, uh, yeah, it was, it was like 2000 we started. Um, okay. It, extremely hard to find any music online. <laughs> I don't know if you know that or not, but I no, looked and looked and could, it was very difficult. I did I end did. up finding a couple fat man in Thailand for one, which I loved, yeah. but <laughs> really not easy uh, to find music out there. Yeah, no, I, I, I need to actually put some of it back out on digital services. I mean, for the, you know, the four people like yourself who are looking for it. Um, no, I just, uh, you know, I, I got into this as a music fan, but I always, I was kind of saying for my own interest, but I just, I hadn't, you know, it wasn't it wasn't that story where somebody starts a band and then they have to start a record label to put out their own thing. I had the record label. I wasn't in a band. And then I decided maybe I would give it a try. And um, I went and uh, I went and tried out for this local band here thinking I was going to get the gig and I didn't get the gig. And then uh, I was in touch with this band from D.C., like in the 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 D.C. kind of Maryland doom scene uh, called Iron Man. And they had a tour booked and I, I knew their bass player a little bit or the bass player at the time. And she was like, yeah, our, we have a tour booked and our singer can't go and our drummer can't go, but we're going to get this dude from Florida to come up and play drums. And I'm like, well, I'll go, I'll come sing for you. And she's like, great. When can you get here? I'm like, you never even heard me sing. She's like, if you think you can do it, we need you because we got to, we got to go on this tour. So I'm like, wow, really? And this was like March of 2000. So I, learned a bunch of their songs, went out, we had like three practices. And then I just went and did like a three and a half week tour in the Midwest with Iron Man as their fill-in singer and got home and was just like, Oh my God, that was awesome. I really need to figure this out. So there was a, there was a guy named Shay. He's uh he's from a town about two and a half hours uh, North of here of Albuquerque. And he was a customer 
And he was just like, Hey, I got, I got a buddy who plays guitar. If you're ever looking to do something, he's, he's ready. He's into it. And Shay introduced me to him and we kind of had a couple of hits and misses as far as other members, but we ended up starting spirit two together and yeah. And it, it was, you know, it was kind of all of our first real band. Um, so yeah, by the end of 2000, we had like the, the lineup that was there for like to start, I don't know, to make our first record. And yeah, we just, we, we put out a, a record and a split. I put it out on Meteor City because I had the label and it just was like, all right, this will be easy. I didn't really think, I didn't think a whole lot about like, you know, will this be taken seriously in the same way because it's my band and my label? Later, I would reflect on that and be like, I don't know if I ever want to do that again. If I'm ever in a band again, I don't think I want to put out my own music because I want it to be taken seriously. I want people to either dig it or not dig it just based on what it sounds like and not sort of have other stuff tied up in it. Like, oh, the label guy's putting out his own record. No, you know, what a, you know no kidding. Right, so, right. Um, yeah, so we did it for a few years and then it just kind of fell by the wayside in, in about 2005. And then a few years ago, I, I moved back to Albuquerque and was still in touch with my old guitarist. And I don't know, I'd grown up a bit, he'd grown up a bit, and I still kind of want, we were interested in, pursuing that creative outlet again. And uh, yeah. And it, I actually, it's funny that first band that I mentioned that I tried out for in 2000, that I didn't get the gig. We became friends with their guitarist. His name's big Steve. And he's a big scene guy. He knows all the musicians in Albuquerque. So when, when me and my guitarist started trying to put something together, I asked Steve, I'm like, Hey, you have any idea who we should get as a drummer? And he's like, Oh, you got to get this guy. And he told me the name and I found him on Facebook or whatever and, and sent him a message on messenger. I'm like, Hey, this is who I am. And I don't know if you're interested. And, and first I got like, I got what I, what I thought was like the, the most like brush off response. It was like, yeah, I like to play drums. And that was the, that was the message back. I'm like, yeah, he probably, cause he's, he's awesome. And I was like, he must get hit up all the time. And he's just like, yeah, yeah I'm sure. I'm sure you would like me to come play drums in your band. Like, yeah. and then maybe like two hours later, he's like, Oh shit, I know who you are. And he sent me a photo of that first compilation that we had put out. Oh really? Welcome to your city compilation, which is now 20 years old. He's like, I know who you are. You're here. Like, I'm like, yeah. And then ended up getting big Steve who was just trying to help us out. He ended up joining the band as the bass player. So it's me and two guys I've known for 20 something years. One of whom was my original guitarist. One of whom was in the band that originally didn't take me when I applied, when I tried out for his band. And the drummer that he thought was like the best drummer in town that he thought we should go get. So we got. And that's what became Blue Heron. That's what became Blue Heron. Yeah. So, I mean, you have all this access to these record labels. We haven't even gotten to really Magnetic Eye that much, but a Ripple as well, plus Blue's Funeral. So, I mean, is there ever any ambition to re release any of that Spirit 2 material? I am probably, I just talked to my, to Chav, my guitarist, the other night about that. And we're probably just going to sort of, quietly add it to Bandcamp and just sort of just have it there like with a little explanation like this is the band that has a couple of the guys that eventually became Blue Heron um for anybody who's interested or cares I mean you can find it on um you can find some of it on YouTube it's it's not on digital services anymore but we've got the rights to it we can put it back out there I don't know yeah. it's one of those things where it's like you can go back and look at something that you did 20 years earlier and sometimes you're proud of it and sometimes you're like oh Jesus and it's just yeah I, I totally understand that. And there's been a few people that have been like in bands and you go and listen to their early stuff and you go, Oh, I see. I see why you left. I see why you don't talk about it. I, you know, 
but I didn't I didn't get that I didn't get that feeling from Spirit Two. I, I actually liked it and I wanted to hear yeah, more, but it was so fucking hard to find. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll put it back on our bandcamp at some point, just as some as kind of a document. This is what we did, and and aren't you glad that we got better <laughs> in the last twenty years? <laughs> yeah. So all right. So insert blue heron now. Sure. Um. You know, I, like I said, I love Black Blood of the Earth. Just that the second I was sitting on the couch downstairs and. Uh, we were watching a movie and I saw the single, like the little video that you post on Instagram or something. And I was just listening to it real quietly. So that I, well, I wasn't disturbing my girlfriend while she was watching this movie. And I just heard the drums and I was like, Oh, I don't even have to hear anymore. I'm going to fucking love this song. I know it already. <laughs> so I just, I didn't even listen to the rest of it. I waited until the next day I could put it on my speakers and I was right. It's fucking fantastic. I still love it. I listen to it all the time. It's a great like workout song and I, I love it a lot. So you only have like two songs out at this point. Um, uh, not not counting some covers, uh, the ACTC cover and, and stuff like that. Right. But um, you know, you just played a show. I know with uh, with High Desert Queen and stuff. You must have other songs out there. Yeah, well, we we recorded a whole album earlier this year, and coming from the label side of things, I just was I just wanted to be sort of uh, thoughtful and intentional about how we did whatever we did. You know, I, I get hit up by bands all the time who are like, hey, we'd love somebody to put out our record on vinyl. We already released it on Spotify. I'm like, well, I know there's some labels that do that, but I always feel like if you really want a label to do their best for you, there has to be planning and thinking and, and you know, you kind of put together, you, you do everything at a, on a certain schedule according to a certain process. I mean, it doesn't, it's not very exciting. It doesn't sound very rock to think that like that, but you have to think like that if you want to maximize the possibility of, you know, the impact and people hearing it and so forth. So I was trying to apply a lot of that to whatever we were going to do. I mean, not that it was solely my decision, but I shared this stuff with the band and it's like, Hey, you know, I would rather not release our music on the labels I work with. It would be cool to get to find somebody else who's into it just because they dig it and they'd like to get behind it. But as a record label, I always love to see when bands are proactive and showing that they are willing to and able to do stuff on their own. So what if we were, what if we self-release like a, like a seven inch and put a couple songs out and we'll play, you know, we'll play some decent shows behind it and we'll get on this, you know, this one of the redux compilations that I do for magnetic eye. I don't, I don't, I don't mind using my access for my own band when it comes to something like that. Cause it's a cover and you know, everybody loves ACDC. So um, yeah. So we basically just decided to put out the, the two song seven inch out of, and kind of carve that out of, the tracks we recorded for the record while we were shopping the record. And that way we can kind of tell labels, Hey, this is who we are. This is what we've done, or this is what we're in the process of doing. And just, you know, as opposed to the band who's essentially like, Hey, we're, you know, we're a stoner rock band from here, please sign us and do everything, which no band says that, but there's sometimes you, you sense that that's essentially what they're saying, which is we're really good at the music stuff. We need somebody to do everything else. And I always yeah. love it when bands are kind of like, we actually understand a lot of the stuff. We're doing social media marketing. We made our own video. We, you know, we dropped two songs on Spotify and here's some of our numbers and here's what we're doing to kind of build those and that sort of thing. So I just yeah. try to put myself in the in the position of what do I like to see as a label from a band? And then, hey, guys, maybe we could do that. And everybody I just pretty heard uh, Todd from Ripple just the other yeah. day posted some sure. video or something about it. And he was talking about the same thing going you know, if you're, if you're wondering how to get on Ripple, like, it's very simple. Like, we want to see that you're trying, <laughs> you know, we want to see that you're out there and, and sharing yeah. stuff on social and being active. And 
And I, I, you, I couldn't imagine that it being like that 30 years ago or 20 years ago or anything where they're just like, these guys were degenerates just barely playing their instruments and that was enough, you know? And now you have to be like tech savvy and a marketer. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you, and you really show like the downside to working with you if you aren't those things or, I mean, it, it, it's so easy now to, to, to do these things on your own that if your way of approaching me as a label is to send me a YouTube link in the direct message of my Instagram account with no further explanation, yeah, there, there's no excuse for that. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've thought about that even for for slightly fuzzed for even the, just being a guest on the podcast. A lot of people will send me stuff or or ask to be like on the, on the playlist that I have on on Spotify and stuff. Sure. And which I love. I, I don't. I don't want to discourage anyone from doing that. I love it. It makes my job much easier. But the people that go, hey, you know, I've seen your stuff. I like the list. I want you to check out this song. Here's what we're about, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I love it. The people that just send one link, I go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? Like, it's just, it's just strange, kind of like, I like, yeah, you're not, you're like, not, I, like, I owe, like, I owe it to them or something to like check out their, and it's, it's very strange. It's, it's right. Kind of we're so good. Weird. All we, we, we're going to give you no justification or context for this. No we're context, gonna, no explanation, yeah. nothing. Just here's a song, here's a link. Right. You do the rest. You do the work. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So coming from the label side, obviously I have a degree of cynicism, but I'm just like, all right, I know what I hate to see as a label guy. So let's, let's not do that <laughs> as a band. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, we haven't like, we haven't officially, officially announced it yet, but we basically have two labels that are, that are kind of going to co-release because we were lucky to have two different labels, both respond to, us kind of getting it, just reaching out to labels that we thought were cool with the record and saying that they're interested. So we have Cosmic Artifacts in Europe who's going to put out uh, the album over there, and then Seeing Red in the U.S. is going to do it over here. So do you have a date yeah. for that? Um, like Aprilish, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah. Cool. Yeah, not too far behind. Like I mean, it's great because we got we just got to play a release show for the seven inch. Yeah. You know, we'll go through the holidays, we'll we'll do some writing and stuff in January and then kind of start planning for promoting the yeah, promoting the record. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, us too. It's I mean, it's, you know, with the pandemic and and vinyl production lead times being what they are and so forth, I mean, it's already 8 months since we recorded it, so um, right. yeah, we're pretty anxious. So I, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that you had some connection with Ripple and Magnetic mm -hmm. Eye and stuff. How how does that work exactly? Where you have your own label, you work with other labels. There's no like conflict of interest or or anything. Like, what exactly is that relationship like? I mean, so when I said I when I first started coming back to the scene, I went and started writing for blogs. The blog I wrote for was the Ripple Effect, which is Todd okay. from. I mean, that's Ripple Music's blog. Yeah. And, I didn't know him. I just, I actually was talking to JJ from the obelisk and he's like, yeah, you should talk to Todd. And so I did. And Todd was like, yeah, sure. We could always use writers. And I wrote a few pieces for them and got, maybe got to know Todd a little bit just over email and so forth. Got a little bit of a feel for who he was and so forth. And so we were already in touch. And then my actual entrance back into working for labels was what I told you about magnetic eye. So I was really just doing the magnetic eye thing, but I always had this idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to maybe do my own thing again. I mean, magnetic eye, was founded by this guy, Mike Vitale, who had a great vision for what he wanted and a certain musical aesthetic. And I was essentially 
I mean, I, I signed a couple bands for Magnetic Eye, but for a while at, at back when he was, you know, when he was still in charge of it, but it was essentially his vision, which was great. And I was just kind of helping execute on that and using what I had, what I kind of knew how to do. And then I just still had that, that itch to have something that was entirely mine. And it, I didn't necessarily want to compete with Magnetic Eye. I just wanted to do something where it was going to live or die based on my own ideas, how I wanted to run it, what band, what kind of music I wanted to put out. And that's, that is essentially what became Blue's Funeral. And so it turned into more of a label label than I maybe anticipated at the time. I really thought it was going to be essentially a company that existed purely to put out this post-wax series, which is just supposed to be a series of one-offs, not mm-hmm. signing bands, not competing with labels that are signing bands, but just like this sort of curated series. Like, hey, if you like this type of music, just subscribe to Postwax and we will send you these exclusive releases that stand on their own. And I was very content with that idea. And then it, it, it kind of grew beyond that to a degree where I ended up putting out a couple albums that I hadn't, hadn't planned to do, but I, I still was never thinking of myself as a competitor to Magnetic Eye. And then um, I had a day job at the time that I was, so I was, I was actually still working the last, the last real day job I had um, in 2018 and I found that during the day I was doing sort of sneakily doing more of my magnetic eye work and my setup for Blue's Funeral and my attention was drifting away from my, my regular work. And so I ended up quitting that job in July of 2018 and was just kind of like, you know, before I like, I mean, I'm not a kid, my wife and I need money and so forth, but, but before I go get another job like that, where I'm going to be continuing to try to tread water in this way psychologically let me, let's just see if there's any chance that the people that I know and the stuff that I know how to do could translate into me actually being able to work in this industry. So we basically spent about a year going into debt, living on loans and credit and so forth, where I was still doing Magnetic Eye, building Blue's Funeral. That's when I reached out to Todd from Ripple and essentially said, hey, do you need anything? And he said, sure, maybe you could come on and do it this and this and this and this. But again, Ripple is Todd's label. So I didn't really have, I, I wasn't concerned like they were going to end up fighting over any bands because Mike was the primary signer for Magnetic Eye. Todd is the guy who signs all the bands for Ripple. And all I'm doing is essentially making sure stuff runs properly and, you know, production happens on time and, and then PR happens and so forth. So I was able to kind of balance those for a little while. And then um, in 2019, I, I actually found a buyer for Magnetic Eye that, that Mike was interested in getting out of Magnetic Eye if he could and having somebody take it over. And I actually found someone, the the company that owns Prophecy, which is a big kind of German avant-garde metal label, bought Magnetic Eye and brought me on to continue to run it. So that's probably when it became the closest to, you know, now is there a conflict of interest because now I'm kind of behind, I'm the guy behind Magnetic Eye signing bands and so forth, but I also still do work for Ripple. But I just haven't found it to be the case because they're kind of different animals. Todd has a very specific way of structuring his deals. He also has his own ear as far as what he likes. And we, we really haven't, I, I don't, I think we've maybe run into it one time. And, and when I say run into it, it wasn't like a, an issue. It was just kind of like there was a band that I was interested in that I didn't know Todd was looking at until the guy from the band told me, he's like, yeah, I appreciate it, but I think I'm going to go with ripple. Like, oh, I didn't even know you were talking to ripple, but, what can I say? I mean, Todd's a great guy and, and I, I mean, I get it. <laughs> so yeah. I'll still end up working on your record. So, I'll, you know, I'll see you next year. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, if you you kind of mentioned the the um, what do you call them the redo albums you, you did oh, the, the yeah the redux the redux albums you you did the ACDC one recently two of them the, mm-hmm. the best of and yeah uh, back in black and there's been a, a kind of a series of them I don't know if you ha- if you've been involved with all of the ones that I've seen there's been a, a handful of like Doom related cover yeah. albums but. I think there's been a couple Pink Floyd ones. There was an Alice in Chains one last year, maybe. There's been a handful of them, but yeah, um, those are so fascinating to me. I, I, they're so interesting to me because I think that, like, you know, covers kind of get a bad rap sometimes, and sometimes they they do really suck. But when they're done right, when they sound like a new band, when they sound like a new song, and you do them in your own way as a band, like I, fi- I find them so fascinating. I'm always looking forward to those. And the, the ACDC one that just came out. Is, is no different. It was really cool. I know Blue Heron had a song on there, um, right. which was great. Um, but but any of them. And ACDC is such an interesting one because they're so, like, you can just tell what ACDC is. The, the voice is so specific. And it still sounded awesome. I mean, like, I could have imagined Alice in Chains or Pink Floyd done by stoner bands. I, I didn't understand how this was going to work with ACDC. I was like, how the fuck are these bands going to sound like ACDC? Yeah, and it, it was great. It was beautiful. It was like every band kind of took it on their own and they ran with it. And I just I love them. I, th- I think they're so fascinating. I think there was an intimidation factor with the ACDC one, too, because it was actually harder. So you, you mentioned I, I had I didn't work with Magnetic Eye on the Hendrix one. That was the first one they did that. Mike did that one all okay. on his own. And he had basically put together the helmet one. And that's based pretty much right when I started working with the labels. I came on just as that was coming out. So my first one was the Floyd one. And, and I helped a lot, you know, picking some of the bands and organizing that one and, and doling out some of the songs and really bringing that thing to fruition. So that was my first of the series. But yeah, the Floyd one was actually comparatively pretty easy because everybody loves Pink Floyd. And a lot of people have never thought about how they would kind of reimagine Pink Floyd themselves. But if you're starting out with something that isn't innately super heavy, there's a lot that a heavy band can do. Um, you know, the Sabbath one was almost kind of like, eventually you have to do Sabbath. So we did. And, yeah. and again, and it was cool, but the, the ACDC one was really like, I, I think a lot of people really couldn't figure out what they would do with ACDC. Cause it was, yeah. it took a while for me to actually get all the songs kind of, allocated and, and get the right bands on board to do to do what they did um i mean i'm super stoked with how it came together but that was that was the toughest one out of any that i had worked on i mean I'm, I'm really pleased with how it came together but yeah you hit the nail on the head the the biggest the biggest missed opportunity is a band who goes in and just does a faithful note for note cover of yeah. of an original especially when you have a chance to be part of something like this where you're rebuilding and reimagining the record from one end to the other why would you want to be the band who just essentially plays the song? Yeah. Like, this is your chance to show what you would do, what this music means to you, what this song means to you. Internalize it, digest it, spit something else back out that is both familiar and completely unfamiliar, but but entirely you guys. That's right, your chance right. to do that. Do that. And it's so awesome when they when they when they do it right. I mean, I I, I talked to Kalel on here mm-hmm. and this was before the ACDC stuff was out, but I knew it was coming. I knew they had a song on it and they had done just a couple covers in the past. I think they had like maybe two or three in their, in their back pocket. 
Right. And they're a band that really takes it and runs with it. And I was excited to hear their contribution to the ACDC as well. Cause it's, I mean, you can tell like the song structure is maybe a little different than what you're used to with Kalel. Right. But there's something so familiar about their sound, the voice, how they play the, the tone, everything. And they, they make it their own. And I, I just love them. I love the, all the whole series and, and the, even the ones that you're, you know, you're not necessarily involved with, but there's been a lot out there and when they're, they're done right, man, they're just so awesome. No, it's been great. And, and as you said, I mean, covers and tribute albums can, can be a dime a dozen. So you yeah. really have to be thoughtful about like choosing, choosing the band, choosing how you put it together, choosing who's going to be part of it. And it takes kind of however long it takes. Like you can't rush it. I'm working on a Soundgarden one now and, and, it's very possible this one's going to take as long as the ACDC one did because Soundgarden is another band. <clears throat> a lot of people love them. Not everybody's going to take them on for obvious reasons, especially vocally, right? So, yeah, that that'll be interesting too because I I was just telling someone this the other day. Soundgarden was always one of those bands where I just kind of chalked it up to being like, I don't know, safe dad rock. You know, like it was on the radio all the fucking time growing up. When I was in high school, Soundgarden was on the radio every fucking day. And I just, I wasn't even into it at that point. I had moved on to heavier stuff. I liked grunge. I liked Alice in Chains and Nirvana and even some Soundgarden. But like after hearing Black Hole Sun every 30 minutes for like three years, I was like, I just don't care about Soundgarden at all. Like, I, I don't care. And it, I really never checked them out. I mean, I had heard all their hits. I had heard a handful of other songs that they have done, but I just never cared. And it was pretty recently within like the last year I had just had so many people over the years go, I think you'd really like them. I mean, Chris Cornell's amazing. And like, I think you'd really like their sound. You like that kind of music. And I'm like, all right, fine, fine. I'll go back and I'll check them yeah. out. And I, and I was like, holy shit, this is great. <laughs> and now, now I'm going around telling people like, have you heard of Chris Cornell? Fantastic. Yeah, pretty much go back and listen to like 4th of July and Limo Rack, and you're just like... 4th oh, of July is one of them, and yeah. uh, what's the one, Like Suicide? Oh, yeah. Was one of my favorite songs on that record. I was like, God damn, this is what I've been missing out for all these years. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah, that'll be cool. <laughs> so, okay, so what's um, what can we expect from Blue Heron or Blue's Funeral next year? Anything special? What, what can we look forward to? Well... Postwax Volume 2 was supposed to be happening this year. Vinyl production delayed that, but it will be happening next year. So um, the Josiah record is, is the first release on Postwax. Then the comeback album from Mammoth Volume. Then the new album from The Odolith, which is essentially the band that formed from the ashes of Sub Rosa. Then a one-off from Dead Meadow. And then I think probably the Acid King record will all be coming next year as part of Postwax. Cool. For those who actually subscribe to Postwax, and then we'll be doing sort of like the standalone kind of standard retail versions of, of each of those uh, a couple months behind the Postwax version. So comparatively, this is a quieter year for Blues Funeral. We only had two records out just, again, because it was harder to get stuff out. But next year, everything that was supposed to happen this year will be coming. Um, and then, yeah, my band Blue Heron will be dropping our record. Um, and Magnetic Eye has a ton of ton of big stuff coming next year as well. I mean, uh, Best Far Yeltsin, who's on the back in Black Redux, they've got their their next full length coming out. Um, Ruby the Hatchet, who's kind of our biggest signing to date, they've got a new album coming probably mid-year. Uh, Costa Casanova, who's kind of one of the most hungry, ambitious up-and-comers that we have on the label. I mean, they're they're out touring 
right now as we're recording this, I mean, they're pretty much touring under their own power and uh, they've got a new record in the can that's coming out. So we're going to have a bunch of stuff um, on Magnetic Eye next year. And don't even get me started on Ripple. I don't know how Ripple manages to maintain the, the, the volume of output, but I'm always just trying to keep up. I'm hanging on by a thread at all times on my Ripple yeah. responsibilities just to keep up with all the stuff Todd's got in the works. So there's, there's a lot. And you did say something was happening with Lowrider next year, right? Well, th they're definitely recording the uh, the split with Elephant Tree, um, okay. and so when that when that drops is pretty much entirely up to them and the status of vinyl production and you know the worldwide whatever supply chain bullshit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Okay. It'd be pretty easy for a band to go in the studio and they'd send a master and, you know, three and a half months later, we could have a record out. It's not like that right now. Um, yeah. I, look, I look forward to those days coming back, but there's not much indication that that's going to happen anytime super soon. So okay. we'll just keep operating within the schedule that is allowable for us. And uh, you know, it's, it's a weird time to be in the music business when the, when the most efficient thing is bands turning in their records on time. And yeah, right. the least predictable thing is everything else. Yeah, never would have thought, right? No, no. So I don't know how familiar you are with Slightly Fuzzed or the podcast, but we we do a lot with goofy, ridiculous album covers and such. And at the end of the podcast, we often play a game called Real or Fuzzed. And I show you a series of usually album covers that are ridiculous. Some are real and some are made by me. And we call those fuzzed. Okay. I made a special. I made a special edition for you. Uh, these are all record labels. So you're going to tell me if they are real record labels or if they are fuzzed record labels. Oh, all right. So this is the first one. It's called Bonerizing Records. I'm going to say fuzzed. This is, in fact, a real record label. <laughs> all right. Bonerizing. <laughs> Wet Dreams recordings. That feels real. This is real. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is might be like electronic music, but it is, but it is in fact. All real. right, all right. <laughs> Two high records. That also feels real. This is fuzzed. Ah, oh, all right. I made that one. Yeah, well, if you're thinking of starting one, though, you should probably hang on to that logo. Yeah, <laughs> for for your next endeavor, <laughs> I can tell it to you. Iomium. <laughs> fuzzed. This is real. Come on. Yeah. With the mustache and the logo? Yep, that's it. That's it right there. They're, they have some heavy bands in there. You should check them out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Big old balls records. I really don't want that to be real. Um, I, I'm going to go fuzzed. <laughs> this is fuzzed. Yeah, for oh, sure. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> the Dregs records. That's real. That is real. I've had Shane on the podcast, but I thought yeah. I'd give him a shout. Yeah, I know that. Okay. Wet Pants Records. Fuzzed? This is fuzzed, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this might be from like a kid's book, actually. You're restoring my faith in, <laughs> in the creativity of small business owners. <laughs> Stiffy Recording Company. Boy, that seems like it. I like the logo. It seems like it could be real. Uh, real? This is fuzzed. All right. Well, <laughs> I've done a nice job on the look. <laughs> Thank you. Crippled Dick Hot Wax. Uh, that's real, right? 
That is real. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a feeling that you might know a couple of these, but that yeah. logo is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. So. Fueled by ramen. Real? That is real. I don't know why I know that one, but I yeah, I recognize the, the, the name. Yeah. Erect records. Uh, I'm gonna go fuzzed. That's real. No kidding. Yeah. Well, it looks like it might be like a stoner type of record company, but I'm not sure if that's true. Thinking about the amount of time I agonized over naming things in my career. And yeah. <laughs> you show me some of these. I'm like, hmm. You could have right. just went with big old balls records. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Still available. <laughs> Sunset hand job. Uh, fuzzed. That one is real as well. Holy hell. Yeah. Again, I think that one might be more like electronic type music, but uh, definitely real. <laughs> I feel like I fa failed that contest, but also the owners of some of those labels kind of failed all of us in a way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think you did uh, you did okay there. That was a particularly ridiculous round of real fun, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> right. Uh, but that's it. Um, that's all I got for you, man. I appreciate your time. Uh, I loved hearing about kind of, you know, what was going on in the scene early on and, and, uh, how you got into it and all the things you're involved with. You're a very busy person and you've done a lot for, for stoner metal and desert rock and all that kind of stuff. So appreciate your time, man. Thanks for having me. It's been, a, it's been a great time talking about it all. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll stay in touch. I'm looking forward to what you have coming out next year. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Let's definitely stay in touch. Cool. See ya. Let's talk to you soon.